from API. This is Energy Tomorrow Radio, your source for information and conversation about the most important energy issues of the day. Welcome to Energy Tomorrow Radio. I'm your host, Jane Van Ryan. President-elect Obama has just announced three key nominees for energy and environmental policy roles in his incoming administration. They include Carol Browner in the role of energy czar, Nancy Sutley as chair of the Council on Environmental Quality, Lisa Jackson as EPA administrator, and Dr. Stephen Chu as secretary of energy. So what does this mean for environmental and energy policy in the years ahead? Kevin Book of FBR Capital Markets is with us today here in the studio to answer that question. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you always, Kevin. So what can you tell us about these individuals? Well, every single one of the nominees has been a dedicated and activist environmentalist uh, for most of their careers. They do have a diversity of viewpoints and specializations uh, in different parts of their in, in the case of Dr. Chu's science and in, and in other cases, public affairs portfolios. But what they are in common is they are individuals who have united environment and energy into the same practice. The idea of thinking about energy policy and environmental policy as separate issues is, for the next four years at the very least, over. Now, it's important to say here that API is prepared to work with whomever serves in the Obama administration towards protecting the environment and ensuring adequate supplies of energy for American consumers. But getting back to these appointees, I do want to ask you, in your opinion, what do you think these appointments say about the general direction of the incoming administration's energy and environmental policies? If you say that they're all married together, that seems clear from the face of it, but what do you think the direction might be? The direction is likely to be more restrictive from uh, the perspective of producing conventional and low-cost energy sources. And there's an implication here that I think we all have to, to come to terms with, which is that irrespective of environmental policy, it has become more expensive to produce energy from all sources. The last cheap barrel and the last cheap megawatt hour are already in existence, and the new ones are going to cost us more. As we pay for stewardship, we pay in future dollar costs. Uh, sometimes at times like these, the, the you know, economic circumstances in which we find ourselves, it can be difficult to, to justify some of the costs for future stewardship when we need essentially energy sources at low cost today. In a recent FBR Capital Markets research update, you wrote that we're likely to see four shifts in energy policy. The first one involved a change combining social policy with energy policy. Can you elaborate on that, please? Absolutely. What we're seeing is a convergence of essentially forced conservation behaviors and regressive benefits. Let me explain. If you're poor and you have a lossy home that leaks cold air, in all likelihood you want to fix it. If you can't afford to fix it, though, your consumption of energy stays exactly the same. Likewise, if you have an old and inefficient car and you can't afford to maintain it, your consumption of energy, which is probably inefficient relative to newer, better maintained cars, stays the same. There's an activist stance now. The view is, let's get in there and look at the folks who are, who are doing less well economically and let the government take the decision to change their capital stock, replace their cars, make their houses more efficient, and eliminate some of the market-based decision-making that used to take place. Now, in the long run, this has implications that are not altogether positive. Uh, you don't necessarily want decisions where people don't connect their their outlays with their outcomes. But at the same time, 
In the near term, this is likely to, to deliver benefits in terms of immediate conservation and therefore reduced energy demand. The second shift that you dealt with in your report dealt with uh, electricity generation. Can you explain that one? If you go back to the history of electric power in the U.S., it's been one where transmission lines have not been as well received as natural gas pipelines have been. Uh, the Section 7 of the Natural Gas Act is an artifact of a different world 70 years ago. And so for all the big talk about transmission builds, there remains a lot of opposition to new electric power stations far out from city centers and large transmission lines. What's changed now is that the House of Representatives, with the, essentially the transfer of leadership from John Dingell to Henry Waxman, has lost one of its, its really last staunch defenders of central station power using fossil fuels far out in, in the countryside. Doesn't mean the Senate has changed their views entirely, but you should expect to see energy policies shaped more around distributed generation, and that means rooftop solar panels and other localized means of production, and distribution technologies more than transmission. The next shift that you mentioned was a change in focus on our transportation system. The cars we have today are not fundamentally different from the cars we've had for the last hundred years or so. The fuels and the fuel choice undertaken by this administration and Congress under, under the leadership of congressional leaders has been for the same cars with different fuels. Ethanol and biofuels, and for that matter, cold liquids and gas to liquids options, were presented as a way of extending the supply. There was less being uh, considered, except for the, some, some significant but relatively small uh, CAFE standards changes relative to the magnitude of changes over the past three decades. Now what's happened is we've moved to a different cars, same fuels modality. It's the sort of thing you've heard from the oil industry for a long time. They've said, we expect U.S. oil demand to be essentially flat in the out years, in the, in the two to three decades out, because efficiency gains are coming. Well, efficiency gains are coming. They're looking at finding cars that use the same fuels much more efficiently. That is a paradigm shift. And finally, Kevin, you alluded to a change in congressional spending practices. Can you explain that? Energy policy in the United States is fragmented along the energy resource base and natural resource base of the United States. You'll find that there's not necessarily a partisan divide on most issues. It tends to be, be more a question of what puts money in the ground at home. And that is, of course, the essence of representative democracy. It's not meant to, to slight or, or criticize. But it's created some very, very tough battles in Congress in years past because there's been a fixed pie and everybody's been competing for the biggest possible slice of that pie. It's made energy policy a question of compromises at the minimum rather than the maximum. Now you have a new policy in place, which is that we are trying to stimulate the economy, and energy policy has been explored as one of the mechanisms of doing it. And if stimulus rules define that you want to get money into the economy in the 12 to 24-month horizon, then suddenly the question isn't how much do you have to spend and how can you divide it, but how much can you spend soon? Right now, Kevin, everyone is watching the government's efforts to help our ailing economy. How do you see these environmental and energy policy changes affecting the economy, or will they have any meaningful impact? The most important thing we can do as a society is become more efficient. A lot of the changes that are being discussed right now involve using energy better, more wisely, more efficiently, and enabling growth at essentially lower components of energy for every component of GDP. That kind of thinking is one half of the equation, and I think consumers are already starting to get their heads around that. The other half is efficacy, and that is the efficacy of policies that are undertaken now with a mind towards future growth. Everything that we've done in the past in an effort to try to get around conventional energy 
uh, has generally carried with it some consequences. There have been either higher costs or there have been operational engineering challenges, many of which have required ongoing government support and mitigation. As we look at the ways that we're exploring alternatives, as we look at the ways that we're moving and transitioning into new technologies, efficacy and sustainability of government outlays and commitment are going to be a very big part of what consumers are worried about. Nobody wants to be sitting here holding the bill for a bad idea 20 years ago, uh, 20 years from now. So I think between efficiency and efficacy, you're going to be seeing a lot of focus on what comes out in the next few years. How do you see all of this playing out for consumers? Well, consumers are going to have a hard time. Let's face it. The costs of energy rose and, and fell, and uh, they weren't the biggest part by far compared to the declining value of homes and the decreasing opportunity economically that comes with job losses. Now what consumers have to do is figure out how to hunker down and save and to make investments that are prudent and rational. I think there's going to be a lot more connectedness between the consumers, who are, after all, voters, and the government that represents them when they start to examine the costs and benefits of policies that are being implemented on their behalf. I would expect that there's going to be a lot more folks reading the, the, the fine print in just about everything coming out of Washington. In your opinion, as someone who watches Washington very, very closely and understands financial markets, are there some energy and environmental actions that the incoming administration perhaps should consider? Maybe things that aren't on the table today that really could help the economy? Yeah, the, the idea of creating a green job is, I think, sometimes a misnomer. There's jobs that are environmentally correct but are absolutely focused on the production of conventional energy sources. This country still needs just as many engineers and geologists and uh, skilled, uh, skilled uh, high-tech professions like mining, which has become a very high-tech profession in a lot of cases, and petroleum engineering. And uh, there's a need to essentially continue our subsistence uh, and growth as an economy free from uh, a lot of the economic forces we don't control, which means that if we have a lot of smart people working in any one sector, it's likely going to bleed over into other sectors too. So what are the opportunities? The opportunities are to look at investments not just in producing energy from conventional sources more cleanly, which is absolutely a green job, but also in finding a way to plant essentially a green job tree with education and getting folks much more educated about the, the ways in which energy is produced so that we can become an economy that's better at doing so. Kevin, always a pleasure to talk with you. Always a lot to be learned. Thank you so much for joining us today on Energy Tomorrow Radio. Thanks for having me, Jane. Thank you for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio, brought to you by the people of America's oil and natural gas industry. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for future shows, visit energytomorrow.org. That's energytomorrow.org.